You're listening to a download from the outdoorstation.co.uk. Number five zero nine. Hello and welcome back to the Outdoor Station, the longest running podcast in the world dedicated to outdoor adventure, self-powered travel and appreciation of the world around us. The great outdoors. I'm your host, Bob Cartwright, and I've been producing this podcast since 2005, talking with others passionate about the outdoors, sharing their adventures, and taking listeners on my own personal long-distance hikes. Along the way, I've spoken to many people who have inspired me, not only by a particular achievement, but also their character, resilience, and pure joy of living life to the full. And my guest on this two-part interview is one such person. In recent weeks, her name kept popping up on my radar. And when I finally made contact, she had just set off to Kathmandu for a little bike-packing, relaxing holiday adventure. Now, whereas you or I might take in a few local hills or perhaps the mountains in Wales or Scotland for an adventurous mini-break, Jenny Tuff thought... Traversing the Tharongla Pass in Kathmandu at 5,416 metres, in the snow I might add, would be a jolly little holiday jaunt in between her Run the Mountains of the World project. If you check out her website, jennytuff.com, you will, like me I'm sure, quickly recognise she is a true adventuress. As you'll hear in our conversation, her approach to adventure is almost the pure definition of the word. And I really enjoyed our conversation, and I'm confident you will too. However, I first had to establish if her name was something she'd made up for marketing purposes, or was she really a tough girl? Uh, I absolutely did not make it up. I got really lucky with that one. Um, it's actually pronounced Tuch, but not a lot of people say it that way. Uh, you have to go back kind of north into Scotland to to get people to say it correctly. But uh, no, it is my legitimate name. And could you tell our listeners where you are at this very moment as we record this? I am recording this from Kathmandu. I've just finished about a month of bikepacking around on my little Shan Stushi hardtail. Uh, and I'm flying home tomorrow, so I'm I'm back in the capital now, resting up. Well, certainly people will find the links to your Instagram and uh, various other links in the show notes uh, associated with this podcast and certainly have a look at it because, you know, I think if few of us say that we fancied a, a bit of a bike ride, a bit of exercise, you might pop out for an hour or so, might pop out for a day or so, might pop out for a couple of days, perhaps do a bit of wild camping. But if you check out Jenny's uh, Instagram, you'll see that Jenny's idea of popping out for a little social ride uh, involves a little bit more snow and hard work. How was it? How was that ride? Uh, yeah, as you said, there was some hard work involved. Um, I still don't know how to do holidays correctly, I guess. So this was my holiday. It was meant to be type one fun. Uh, I and I and I did have a wonderful time actually, but I did partway through get hit by a bit of an early winter here. Uh, and that happened when I was coming over. A lot of people know this pass, the Thoron Law Pass. It's quite famous because it's one of the highest passes that you can hike, or in my case, try and carry a bicycle up. 
Uh, and while I was over 5,000 meters, this early winter came in with a heavy blizzard. And the result of that was that I had to carry my bike for three days through knee deep snow. Um, and that was, yeah, I'm going to, I'm just going to go with how hard that was. It was really hard. <laughs> I really looked <laughs> it. It was the hardest bike ride I've ever done. <laughs> It was amazing. In fact, I've got a picture of the uh, of the bike propped up against a wall or something at the moment with the views behind it. It's absolutely phenomenal. And I know your your history is you like to be spontaneous and not make too many plans, which is one of the things I like about you. And compared to a lot of modern days adventurers who who might plan to the nth degree, was this something you just sort of decided one week I'm going to Nepal next week, or did you do a little bit more planning than that? I wouldn't say I did much more planning than that. I mean, I'd bought a map maybe a couple of months in advance. So at least I knew that Nepal was on my radar, that it was kind of an eventuality that I was going to go. Uh, but I, I probably did buy my ticket actually about 10 days before I flew. So uh, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't super well planned. And um, I'm quite guilty of, if, especially if it's a long flight, I think, well, that's just tons of time that I've got to waste. So I'll just, if I'm going to read the guidebook at all, I'll read it on the plane. So I do tend to board my flights without a clue what I'm going to do when I get out the other side. Uh, so this this was a bit of a, a bimbo, a bit of a by the seat of my pants, just have some fun, see where the wind takes me kind of thing. And were you camping on this trip or did you use the hostels or not the hostels, the refugees? No, so I would have liked to camp because I, I really do like a night under the stars. Uh, but Nepal is an incredibly populated country. You don't really go very long without seeing people. Um, and you're going through... I mean, I was I was mostly in the West in these small communities that don't have a lot of tourists and don't have a lot of income as it is. Uh, so you're going through these really small communities that may have a guest house that will cost literally a couple bucks. Um, and I think one of the things that I really like about travel by bicycle or by foot is um, that it is quite a sustainable way to travel, that um, you pass through every community and tend to have to buy things in every community. And I think that's a really important thing to do um, is to not bring in your own food and if you don't have to camp, you know, if you're not committed to the wilderness and you can afford it, then you should stay in these places and contribute to the local economy. So, um, yes, yeah, so I did bring camping gear, but pretty early on the trip, I ditched it and just realized, you know, this is it's quite viable actually in Nepal to just go from tea house to tea house and stay in these little guest houses. And you're typically staying with families and and having a really cool, immersive experience with the culture. And what about the health aspect? Because it's notorious when you go to India or Nepal that you tend to get an upset stomach in, in some format or other. How have you managed on that front? I've managed. Oh, I didn't even think about that till now. Yeah, I got all the way through. Um, I, I'm i a really big fan of when in Rome type of style of eating. So I don't, I don't do fussy eating. I actually do get involved in the local cuisine because, you know, I just think that's a really big part of any culture. So you do want to get involved in it. Um, I guess I didn't get involved in the tap water, so maybe that helped me this time uh, and stayed vegetarian. Um, but yeah, I I don't know. Strong stomach. I put my stomach through a lot over the years, so maybe maybe I'm just like built up for it. So you are a vegetarian? Uh, no, I don't. I don't do any strict rules on eating because I do travel so much um, that it, it's just easier not to have uh, rules. But yeah, while I was out here, I definitely stayed veggie. Maybe there was a few slips, but yeah, just if you're going to get sick, that's typically one of the main culprits is having some of the meat. So, so I avoided it. I noticed with your, your cycle trips and your running trips, which we'll come on to your Run the World series, you travel very, very light. And as such, have you always approached 
eating with the locals or or buying food from the locals as you travel? Uh, yeah, I have um, because I've always done human powered ways of traveling. Um, that really teaches you quite quickly to become a minimalist and to carry a few things with you because it's just going to be a lot more hard and a lot more painful if you try to carry everything with you. Um, I wouldn't say it's something I was good at from the beginning, mainly because when I started out doing solo challenges, um, you know, I was on the budget of a student. So my gear just was quite crap. <laughs> you know, uh, if you get the worst or the least expensive gear in the outdoor shop, you're going to end up with a very heavy backpack. And so that was the way I started out. Um, and I'm quite lucky that now I do have high end stuff. And that means that my packs tend to be quite light. Um, and then also, like we touched on already that I do have that ethos of when you go through these communities, you should rely on them to keep you supported, to get the supplies that you need rather than bringing your own stuff with you. Um, obviously within reason, cause I do a lot of wilderness stuff. And, um, if you're quite committed to the wilderness, you need to make sure that you're going to survive it, but traveling light and just depending on the local communities and, and having that trust that there is going to be something around the corner that's going to keep you alive. Uh, that's something that I get better at the more that I go and my, my packs get lighter every year. And I suppose that's really from experience of, of traveling and backpacking distances. There's always that concern about what's coming next, what's around the corner, will I manage to get there, all the sort of fears that you tend to build up upon yourself. Have you got better at controlling all that within you? Oh, definitely. If I think back 10 years, I would have had so much anxiety about the stuff that I'm doing now, and I would have always wanted to be prepared. And I still do have a bit of that. I mean, if I get, I mean, if we're talking about food supplies at the moment. Like if I get hangry, things are going to go tits up really big way. So I always make sure that I do have enough in my pack. And I do get anxiety about like, what if there isn't something in that next village or, um, what if it's closed or I get there after hours or whatever it is. Um, so I do, I do like to be a little bit overly cautious, but, um, yeah, the more I do it, the more, the less anxiety that I have. And I think I get asked that question quite a lot. Like, how did you how do you manage to find food in this country and that country? And I just always say, like, if people live there, if you know that people live there, there will be food. That's just basic. You know, if people survive there, there's going to be things to help people survive. Um, you don't need to know what shops are there. You'll, you'll find out when you get there. But those people definitely have a way of getting food and you will be able to get it from them. Now, forgive me, but I think you are turning 30 this year or you have turned 30, something like that. Oh, I'm past it. 31. <laughs> oh, yeah, the time moves on. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in my in my research, some people might call it cyberstalking, but in my research of you, <laughs> I, uh, I noticed that there was a, a comment on one of your Instagram pictures from your mother, Joy, who said that 22 years ago, you had your first adventure in the Bahamas, and this <laughs> yeah. is slightly different. You would like to oh, tell me how it all started 22 <laughs> years ago. Yeah, uh, I love it when my mom goes on my Instagram account, let me tell you. Um, yeah, when I was 10, between the ages of 10 and 12, we lived on our sailboat, actually. My parents um, both took leave from their jobs and sold the house. And we moved on to our 37-foot sailing yacht, a family of four, so I have a big sister. Um, and the four of us sailed from Canada to the Caribbean and back, and I was homeschooled and... Uh, yeah, we spent that Christmas in the Bahamas and that was, that was cool. I guess I would have been 10 that Christmas, maybe 11. No, I must have been 11. I don't know. Um, yeah, it was really cool. My parents having to teach us kind of 
Christmas isn't the way that we do it in the Western world where it's all about consumerism and wrapping paper and lots and lots of toys. You're not going to get any this year because we live on a boat. We don't have space for that stuff. Uh, we're going to be traveling through some very poor countries in the next few months. And, you know, you're going to get perspective on how many toys you really need. So it was it was a really memorable Christmas. And that leads me on to your education then, because when you came back from that trip and obviously you joined school, I think you went to high school, was it uh, 11 or 12 after that trip? Did you find that your perspective on the world when the topics of discussion came up about countries or other people's lives or whatever was slightly different from your schoolmates? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, my sister and I were like aliens when we came back to school. Like if you get for girls that age, if you get taken out of school for that long and you don't have things, I mean, remember this pre-internet, um, so we didn't have social media to let us know what was cool. Um, all we, I mean, we lived in our swimsuits and jumped off the back of our boat every day and that was what we did. And then we came back to this Western world of like, we had to learn what the Spice Girls were. I remember that was what was cool at the time. And we were like, what is this? Um, so we, we were like these little aliens uh, when we came back. Everything was quite strange. Um, and yeah, our concept of culture and what's normal and what's weird was completely shifted. You know, people ask us questions, things like, what was the weirdest thing you ate? And we go, well, you know, we actually eat really weird food here in Canada because none of our food actually comes from here. You know, um, when locals eat something that was actually grown in their country, then there's nothing weird about that. Um, so, yeah, we we learned quite a lot. I think the word that you would give it is empathy. We just learned a lot about other cultures and saw different perspectives of ways of living, what houses can look like, what families can look like, uh, what education can look like. Um, and it just gave us a more well-rounded, empathetic view of the world. But at the same time, I'm sure amongst teenagers, that also made you stand out completely differently from the, your, your peer group uh, who must have looked at you and thought, you know, your your perspective, everything you know is is weird. Yeah, I think... Probably the biggest one is that we became feminists really young uh, because we learned a lot. We went to third world countries and we learned a lot about uh, what it means to be a woman in different parts of the world. You know, in growing up in Canada, we would have never questioned our rights and our equality. It never came up. It's not something that I ever experienced as a Canadian uh, that the world could be unfair to anyone else. Uh, and then we went to these countries where we found out that girls even our age had completely different lives that we absolutely couldn't fathom. That seemed really unjust. Um, and we we had to see that firsthand and really like look at girls that were our size and realize just how how rough their lives were and how rough they were going to get. Um, and so we when we came back, then we really valued everything that we had. We really valued the fact that we were going to finish high school and go on to university. And that wasn't something, you know, that was an assumption. It was something that fell in our laps in a way. Um, and we really knew that that was really valuable, that that made us really special as women in this world, that we really do get a lot more than than most people on this planet. Well, I think that's certainly the best possible education you could possibly have at that, that sort of age. And I think an awareness and understanding and a respect for other people's cultures and also how lucky you are in your own situation uh, is, is incredibly valuable. And I think a lot of young people these days are, are missing out on that. Yeah, it's something I'm, I'm really grateful for. I think the older I get, the more proud I am of my parents that they, they made that happen and the more I realise um, what a risk they took taking us out of school and leaving their jobs and doing all that. Um, and making sure that we did get that education that way, that we didn't just stick to tourist traps and 
keep our heads in the Western world, but that we actually did immerse ourselves a little bit and, and learned a lot. Well, I want to come back and talk about your parents a bit later on, because I think they, they're um, influence on you. They'll be so and... pleased. <laughs> and you can You'll share... get some comments on your Instagram, Bob. <laughs> oh, good, good. That'll increase my listeners by one. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> As I say, I really would like people to have checked out a lot of the information that I've put on the on the website about you and the links because it'll give you a lot more background information. But I want to come on to really your your current project, which is your Run the World project, um, yeah. and it's it's again fantastic to read and uh, and enjoy and dip into. But I think if you don't mind me saying, what I like about your history. My wife and I were second-generation hippie travellers in the 70s and 80s. After the, 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 the hippies went out, first of all, in sort of the 50s, 60s, and they forged all the interesting places. And then we started travelling when guidebooks were just starting to appear. And since then, these places have been turned into massive, great big tourist destinations. Mm. And it gets harder and harder to have what we would class, looking back in those days, but even these days, very hard to have... A, an adventure where things are unpredictable and you don't have a guidebook and you don't have everything prepped out for you. And the 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 thing that caught my eye and how I first came across you was obviously your first trip on in Kurdistan, running across Kurdistan. And it's been marvellous to to cyberstalk, sorry, do research on you, to <laughs> to look into how you went about that because you admit in your own words you were not greatly prepared for it. You were obviously in your, I think, in your early 20s when you took it on. And we can certainly discuss what inspired you to do it in the first place. But what I'd like to do after we've, we've, we've chatted about that topic is actually just talk about the preparation and the balance of over-preparing for things and how that's influenced your, your uh, consequent runs. So, so Kurdistan, uh, I think it was 2016, 17, am I right? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. So what yep. inspired you to, to do that? Because I know you'd, you've done your previous sort of adventures, which were a bit um, tamer, would be that the right word? You want, did you want to cut your teeth on something that really was unknown? Uh, yeah. So it came about, um, I live in Scotland now, but I'm from the Canadian Rockies. And it actually came about because I get this homesickness from mountains. You know, I, I can live anywhere. Um, my family moves around a lot. I'm used to moving around a lot. I don't get homesick per se. Uh, but when I'm not in the mountains, I feel it. And that was something that I was thinking about and it was really on my mind. And I thought I need to understand what this is. So I'm going to go to a mountain range that I've never heard of before and see if I still get that feeling of being at home. And I came across the Tian Shan. And when I first saw an image of the Tian Shan, it was like my heart stopped. And I just, you know, that moment where you go, my life is not complete until I go there. Um, and so I don't really know how the plan then spiraled into, I would run all the way across them. I think a bottle of wine was involved, if I'm honest. And, you know, it just, this idea was born and I just, I was so excited by how much I had no idea what I was doing, if it would work, you know, this sport that's called fast packing, you know, running with all your kit. Um, it really didn't exist back then. You know, the forum on Reddit had like 12 people on it and I was one of them. It just... I had no idea how to do it. I had no idea how to plan. I had no idea what kit to carry. I didn't know anything about Kyrgyzstan. I couldn't find out much about Kyrgyzstan. You know, it hadn't been mapped since the Soviets were in power 25 years earlier. Um, everything was so unknown. And I was so thrilled about that. And I like the way that you framed your question earlier, because um, one thing that I found in my research was that there were no recorded run or walk. No one had crossed 
in recorded history at least, the Tianjin and Kyrgyzstan on foot, man or woman, I would technically be, if I completed it, I would be the first person to do that. And I think in this day and age to do a world first, I mean, they almost seem like they're all gone, don't they? You have to mm -hmm. like do it backwards and be the youngest person. You have to be eight years old or something like that. Um, and then there was just this, this massive one. No one had run across Kyrgyzstan. Um, and so at first I was, I was really excited by that. I thought, how cool. I think a lot of us have that heart of an explorer in it, in us, but, um, but it does just feel like everything's been done. So we never get the chance to be explorers. Um, and there it was, there was this massive unknown. Uh, so I was, that was the biggest motivation for me when I started. I thought that's just so cool. I'm, I have no idea what the problems are going to be. I'm just going to have to solve them as I go. And, um, and it was the most, most work I'd ever done planning a trip. I'd spent months and months on that one, just trying to figure it all out, trying to figure out the kit, trying to figure out how to get fit enough to do something like that. It was, you know, about a thousand kilometers, um, trying to figure out this country that didn't have any good maps. Um, it, I took, I put a lot of work into this one, actually. With something as unknown and recognize that it's still pretty much the same at the moment, to be honest, and approaching a mountain range, a series of mountain ranges like that, which are, they're serious mountains, you must have had to battle the negative devil that sits on our shoulder that tells you continually you can't do something, you shouldn't be doing something, you mustn't be doing something, you could do this better, etc., etc., with the practicalities of, of the actual emotion that you had that you wanted to, to have this stamp to, to achieve this yourself. So I can understand how you'd just be searching, sucking up any information at all about Kurdistan, but where did you actually get it from in the end? Uh, in the end, I, uh, mainly had to just learn as I went and just, um, you know, I learned a lot about a lot of things on that trip, a lot about myself, a lot about the country, um, you know, the internal and the external. Um, but yeah, in, in the end I got there, just my knees absolutely shaking just going, what on earth am I doing? I have no idea what's about to happen. Really no idea. Um, and all I do have is that I know how to get myself through stuff. You know, that devil that says you shouldn't be doing this. I know that devil very well. We've had a lot of conversations. Um, so I know that I can manage that. Um, I know that I love travel and exploration. So I'm going to find a way to make this work. I, you know, I, I was younger then. I didn't, I'd never done this before, but I'd still been a lot of places. I'd done a lot of things. So I just kind of had to back myself and just say, right, this might be a disaster, but I'm going to give it everything I've got. And so I just started and I just, I just, yeah, put one foot in front of the other and I learned as I went. You're listening to the outdoorsstation.co.uk. The home of UK based audio and video podcasts for lovers of the great outdoors everywhere. From experience then, looking at back at that, if you could just explain to the listeners, because I, I'm, I would assume, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I would assume that not every day was a simple day of walking from A to B in a relatively straight line and not having to backtrack, not having to find yourself misplaced, not having to keep referring to whatever mapping system that you had. Could you just explain some of the daily routines that you had to go through? Because I'm sure it wasn't as simple as just it was an easy traverse from one side to the other. Oh, it was so far from easy. Um, I don't think I had a straightforward day in 25 days. Um, 
But the basic, I mean, the funny thing about expeditions is that from the outside, they look really gnarly and amazing. But actually, the reality is that they're they're quite basic. And that's the really cool thing about them is that your life is really stripped back. So if like barring the daily catastrophes and whatever they might be, a day for me on the trail would look like I would almost always be camped. Um, it's quite remote wilderness out in the Tian Shan. So I'd be camped in my little tent. I wake up and that tent is probably frozen. Um, and I would boil some water, have some coffee and porridge, get myself packed up, do a bit of yoga, maybe walk for a little bit before I started running. And then I would just, um, you know, check my route and just start running and run as far as I could. I would maybe chop that up with a few breaks. Maybe some nomads would show up and I'd have some comments with them or whatever. Uh, but I would just run all day. And then when it started to get dark again, you know, and it, all you're thinking about during the day is, am I on the right route? Do I have enough water to keep going? Cause, um, you know, water's water becomes all that you obsess about, I think. Um, and then when the sun starts to set, you have to start thinking about what's going to be a safe and secure place to camp. And then you find some more water and you set up your tent and, um, and that's kind of it. It's, it should be pretty basic actually, you know, a lot of cool things happen, but that's in a nutshell, all you're going for every day. And talking of the, the safe elements, the safety elements, water being one of them and purification, but also did you carry with you uh, a Garmin or a spot system with, on that particular trip or is that something you've just uh, added to your kit since? Uh, yeah, I had an inReach with me. Um, my mother loves it. She can log on and see where I am in the world. And, and I can also get messages that way. And that um, I did find that quite nice for a morale boost is every now and then um, someone would say, hey, we can see your little dot. You're almost halfway there or something like that. So, yeah, I, I do have one of those. Um, I did, so I got the inReach and had this plan that, you know, sweet, I've got this little SOS button and I can page a helicopter anywhere in the world. So if I do break a leg, you know, I'll be fine. Um, it was after that, that I did the research and found out Kyrgyzstan doesn't even have a helicopter in the whole country. <laughs> so you, you might be waiting a little while. And what about the, what about the water purification? Did you worry about that at all? Uh, I didn't worry about purifying the water. I mean, I have... I would have a filter, I would have the tablets and I would have, um, a stove always. So I'm, I'm good on all fronts of cleaning the water once I've got it, but getting it was the issue. So Kyrgyzstan, I decided to run across Kyrgyzstan in the fall so that I knew that all the passes would be clear of snow by then. Um, but they'd had a really hot summer. So the result of that was that a lot of rivers and streams that would be marked on whatever map I had, which obviously my maps weren't terrible. Um, but frequently they'd go dry. Um, and I, I put in some very long days without enough water and some days without any water at all, that I just couldn't find any. So, um, it did become a, a constant anxiety to find some running water. So that was 2016. <clears throat> in 2017, you did the high Atlas, uh, in Africa coming from Morocco. Now, um, yeah. I've, as I say, I've done the research on you and, and understand some of the issues that you faced on that one. So let's, 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 there's two or three aspects really I'd like to talk about. First of all is the actual sort of the route and the planning and some of the practicalities. The second thing is actually, uh, living and, uh, interacting with the nomads as you went. And then the third thing is obviously the gendarmerie, which was provided you, I think, with the biggest negative of all the trips that you've done. Um, but for understandable reasons with possibly when you step back and look at it, but let's, let's come back to that later. So, so first of all, then the planning and preparation for something like that, uh, I take it based because of the previous one in Kurdistan, you had obviously built up a lot of experience about yourself and about potentially what you needed, but of 
of course, the temperature differences in both ranges would have been completely different in Kurdistan and the High Atlas. So how did you balance that out? How did you cope with that? So, yeah, so I went into this one incredibly confident because I just overcome the Tian Shan. And when I did the Tian Shan, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, that was my first time trying it. Now, this time I knew what to do. I knew what to pack. I knew how to prepare my body. Um, And this time I was going to Morocco. Morocco has guidebooks, you know, maybe not in the places that I was going, but, you know, the country, at least tourists do go. Um, The Atlas are obviously a lot lower in altitude, like you said. So the temperature doesn't vary as much and you don't get as extreme weather. You know, in the Tian Shan, I could regularly be hit by thunderstorms, hailstorms, snowstorms. In the High Atlas, you're not going to get that. It's a lot more stable just because it's lower altitude. Um, So there were a lot of factors that going into this one, I was way more confident. Uh, and I do think the mountains are always waiting to punish the confident. And that's, that's what happened to me for sure. Um, but yeah, it was in every objectively set, objective sense, it, it should have been a much easier mountain range to get across than the Tian Shan. So you had good mapping. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't push it, but <laughs> I mean, when I start, I started in the Eastern edge with, I mean, foreigners don't go where their trekking groups don't go. So there, there were large sections of it that it was pretty hard to find anything. And then I was just, um, I was relying on Google Earth, actually. Um, it was great because um, the High Atlas being so dry and desert-like, um, you could just look on Google Earth and you just had to look for these little patches of green. And any little patch of green, that was where civilization was. That's where your next water supply is. Uh, and so for the first at least the first week when I was still at low altitude and it was still very much desert ecosystem, I was just running as fast as I could between those little patches of green. So did you program your route or key points into a GPS system before you went into the Garmin system? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I wouldn't say my daily tracks actually followed it religiously, but I at least had, and I'll typically have one to three plans in like planned routes in my Garmin anyways, because they are unknown. They aren't, it's not like there were GPX files I could download from the next, from the first person that did it, you know, I was the first person that did it. So, um, there wasn't a lot of information. So yeah, I just had plan ABC kind of logged in there. And as I went, I would chop and change and ask local knowledge and that kind of stuff. And presumably the, uh, oasis or the water that you came across, you must've, uh, gone through a purification system there because I guess it's shared between the animals and the humans locally. Uh, yeah, typically in the Atlas, you're going to find, uh, wells and springs. Um, but yeah, I, I would filter them anyway. So yeah, I didn't see a lot of above ground water until I was, um, really in the middle where you're at higher altitude. I remember the first day that I saw above ground water and I just like took my clothes off and jumped in. I mean, it was only like ankle deep and I still just sat in it. Like it was a little paddling pool. I was just so delighted to see above ground water because I was just dying of heat. <laughs> so tell me about the interaction with the, the nomads then, the, the desert people that you, you came across. I know they're incredibly hospitable, but was it a comfortable relationship with them, either resting with them or eating their food or, or sharing whatever time you had with them? Yeah, the Berbers, I mean, hands down, I would say the friendliest people I've ever met. And that's saying quite a lot. I've been to some really incredible places. Uh, Berbers are almost overwhelming in how friendly they are. I would get chased. Someone would be screaming down the path after me, um, just screaming at me to turn around and come back because, you know, they've just made a tagine and they want to have me in. And um, I was practically gaining weight as I went, even though I was running like 60 kilometers a day because so many people were stopping me and force feeding me. It's just... Um, really, really lovely people. Um, 
and it meant that I didn't have to worry as much. I think in the beginning, I had a lot of anxiety about the fact that um, population was sparse, that there wasn't a lot of water, there weren't a lot of shops, so um, wasn't a lot of protection from the elements. Um, but then I found that every single home that you pass, they will go out of their way to make sure that you're all right. And that's just what they do. You know, they live in a really hostile environment. It's a really unforgiving terrain, a really unforgiving sun um, that any traveler that goes past the front door of any house um, will be offered water and bread and a space to sleep if they need it and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, they, I honestly don't think I would have made it if the Berbers weren't where the Berbers are. It's a really, really difficult place to survive and they just really look after you. Really wonderful people. Was there a language barrier at all? You know what? I I never figure out how I always get away with the language thing because I'm not great at languages. Um, and Berbers, especially Berber women, won't be educated. So um, Tamazit is their first language and then they'll speak Arabic. Um, since they're not educated, it's unlikely that they'll speak any French. Um, so there was definitely a language barrier, but somehow you just always get away with it, don't you? Because you have the same basic conversations like, um, conversations around food, where are you going? Are you okay? How many children do you have? What's your family like? Those kind of questions. Um, they're somehow just easy to communicate if you just kind of have a smile and an open heart. It just kind of seems to work somehow. And I can never explain how it works because I definitely did not learn any time as eat. I tried. It was very difficult. <laughs> so running through the cultures like this, where women only usually converse with women and within their own support network, was there a culture clash between the men who saw you and the hidden women at all? Um, there were a few uncomfortable situations. Um, I wouldn't beat around the bush. I think North Africa is one of the hardest places in the world to be a woman. And I did experience some villages where I did have to see the truth of that and feel the truth of that. And that was a difficult thing to go through. Um, and I kind of got myself through those those really uncomfortable ones. Like the first, the first village that I got to... Um, they had a few cafes and one hotel. And if you've just been running through the desert for five days, as soon as you see a cafe, like a shaded cafe, you just want to go straight into it and get a cold drink. But as a solo woman, I wasn't allowed to go to the cafes. As a solo woman, I wasn't allowed to go through the front door of the hotel. I was really lucky that they still rented me a room, but I had to sneak through a neighboring business. Um, and it was a really hostile place. And that wasn't just me because I was white and sporty. You know, I saw all the women in this village were treated in this way um but it was it was still really hard to experience but the way that i got myself through that is reminding myself that i chose to be here i bought a ticket to come here and i've got a ticket to leave you know i just got to come in as a tourist and these women who i'm seeing go through the same things that i'm going through right now they don't get that choice this is the way that they live these are the men who are part of their lives um so for me it was kind of like an important thing to experience that walking the proverbial mile in in the shoes of of our sisters around the world and, um, and experiencing what their barriers and their challenges are. Um, but you know, it was, it was still a really dehumanizing and difficult thing to go through, um, being in some of those villages. Did you ever get a feeling of envy from any of the women that you met on the way? You know what? I really, I was really surprised that I more frequently got this kind of like, well, the way that I assumed the translation was, was probably a bit of a you go girl. You know, a lot of women would just be like really excited to see me. You know, they've probably never seen a woman do sport. I mean, the men had certainly never seen a woman do sport. Um, and I think it just, they were just kind of delighted to see that. And I was really surprised by that because I thought I would, I would find that hard if I were in her shoes. Then I saw 
someone like me who just gets to run around practically flaunting freedom. Um, I was really surprised that they were all just unanimously lovely and supportive and they just really wanted to help in some way that they could, where I'm thinking, you know, they're the disadvantaged ones. I'm, I'm the one that has everything. Um, but these women were just going out of their way to make sure that I did have enough water. They would always stuff fruit in my backpack and just like, um, cheer me on kind of thing. It was really beautiful. Do you, did you sort of pay for any of your hospitality at all? Uh, no, that was a really difficult one for me because I, I felt uncomfortable accepting so much from people who live far below the poverty line. Um, and so actually I got pulled aside. Um, I met a guy, I met a Berber guy who spoke really good English. And so I kind of sat him down and I was like, these are all the questions that I've been dying to ask someone that I can speak to for a long time with. And, um, and he kind of pulled me aside on that one. And cause I said, I just feel so uncomfortable. Like I do say no sometimes to people because I just don't think I can take anything from them. It doesn't feel fair. And he, um, he explained a lot about the Quran to me and explained a lot about that culture of hospitality and how important it is to these people to give you that hospitality. Um, so he told me I need to just kind of get over myself with this one and just accept the help and accept the hospitality. Um, and that me being a nice guest, me being um, happy to be there and being generous with my time and my stories and my smile and playing with the kids or whatever. So that's what that's all you need to think about giving back. and. I'm still, I'm still kind of uncomfortable about that. Um, just accepting something for free, but, um, yeah, this guy, guy gave me a bit of an education on, on the religion and culture there. That's that's the system. That's how it works. Yeah. It's hard, isn't it? Especially when you've been brought up in a consumerist society that everything you, you know, there's nothing in life is free and you go somewhere where people, in my experience, certainly people with the least always give the most, whether it's time, interest, helping you out, water, food, whatever it may be. And yet you come to such a wealthy society like like we naturally live in the Western world and everybody is as tight as anything. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a real culture clash, a really good culture clash. Um, but I mean, I do, I do really subscribe to the system of karma. That is the one religion that I have is I really do believe in karma. So when people were giving me that much and being that generous with me in a way that really floored me every single day. And even now, when I look back on that expedition, I'm still just thinking about the small interactions that I had and just going, wow, they were so nice. Um, but I do believe in karma. So what I have to do is then pay that forward. As, and as I went through Morocco, um, just think about all the lovely people that had, helped, that had helped me got to that point and how I can continue to pay that forward and be a good tourist and think about, um, you know, leaving something good behind in this community whether it's just the interactions that i have or the way that i spend my money or whatever it is well that's certainly the the positive from the experience but the the negatives seem to be Mm. the again coming back from the male dominated side of things and the way they view things how you initially met the gendarmerie and what subsequently happened yeah so we, we did not get off on the right foot um this was actually, so that village that I just mentioned where I wasn't allowed to go through the front door of the hotel or can go to the cafes. Uh, I left that village in a, in a bit of a huff and feeling really negative and just feeling really vulnerable. You know, that place had made me feel really unwelcome for the first time. And, um, and also just recognizing how vulnerable a woman can be, you know, we are on average smaller. <laughs> if you're in a really dominant place where women are not protected, that's actually kind of scary to think about. So I left that village and I put in a massive 50 kilometer day. I just ran really hard. I ran out all those feelings um, and I ran up a hill and I was going to do a ridge in the next morning. I mean, who doesn't love a ridge run? I was so looking forward to it. Um, so I was camped out that night um, at the base of this ridge 
And um, in the Eastern High Atlas, uh, the starry nights are just the best I've ever seen. There's no noise pollution because there's no city, or sorry, light pollution. There's no cities around. Um, I remember lying there in my bivy, just feeling way better about everything. Looking up this beautiful night sky, I could see the Milky Way. Um, it's warm enough, so I'm just you know open face bivy, just having the time of my life again. Um, and then of all things, I hear the roar of an engine. And before I know it, two jeeps have shown up, and I'm nowhere near a road, so I don't even know how those jeeps got there or how they found me. Massive off-roading skills for them to get to me. Suddenly two jeeps are there and 10 men all with guns pile out of these jeeps and they're all staring down at me in my sleeping bag, yelling at me in Arabic. Now in hindsight, I'm a little bit flattered. I thought it would take 10 of them to bring me down, but oh my God, 10 men with guns is just not something you want to be looking up from your sleeping bag at. Uh, so they were yelling in Arabic, some of them in French. Um, I didn't really... I mean, I did, I did completely understand them, actually. I pretend that I didn't, but I, I completely understood that they were saying, you can't sleep here, get in the Jeep. And they were all just like, get in the Jeep. Um, now, none of these men were in uniform and the Jeeps weren't marked. So I had no reason to know or believe that they were the gendarmerie. All I know is that there are 10 men with guns. Uh, so for some reason, I, I still don't know how I got the courage to do this, but I dug my heels in and just said, no, thanks. I'm not getting in your Jeep. And stayed kind of stubborn. Um, and then, so they kind of, they kind of calmed down through my own tactics. So one of my tactics was I, I pretended not to understand them. Um, it's far easier to plead ignorance than to start an argument. So if you just sit there looking blank, like you don't understand a single thing, but you're just not getting out of your sleeping bag, that's, that's not confrontational. Uh, so I pretended I didn't understand them that reduced, cause there was 10 of them were yelling at me at the same time. It was really overwhelming. Uh, that meant that they assumed they could only speak English to me, but only a couple of them did speak any English. So that made eight of them shut up. And that was great. But suddenly I'm dealing with the two that speak English. Um, they're obviously a lot younger because in Morocco, the people that speak English tend to be the youngest generation. Um, so we did have a bit of a chat. Um, I wasn't agreeing to get in the Jeep. They were actually insisting that they would put me in the Jeep and take me back to that village, that village where a woman was so unwelcome because I thought I'd be safer there than here under the stars where it was so beautiful because they just had this in their minds that the mountains are incredibly dangerous places. I'll surely die if I spend the night in the mountains. I need to go be safe in this village. Um, and that I found really upsetting. And that continues to really upset me about the gendarmerie in Morocco is that they're exclusively Arab males. None of them are Berbers, none of them are women. They don't understand other lives. They don't have any diversity in their forces. Um, so anyways, it was clear that they weren't going to let me spend the night there. So what we did in the end was all 10 of them helped me pack up my campsite and we marched off to the nearest Berber hut uh, where they pounded on the door and said, you know, this woman, she thought she was going to sleep outside. She must be crazy. She has to stay with you tonight. And so it was near midnight. They made these Berbers wake up and, and take me in for the night. Um, and so I stayed with these Berbers. And in the morning when I went to leave and go back up the hill that I'd, I'd run up the night previously, I had to do it again. <laughs> Um, I actually found that they'd locked the door from the outside to make sure that I spent, spent the night in the Berber hut. Uh, so the gendarme and I did not get off on a good foot. Wow, what a story. And so <laughs> this then continued, having watched your videos. Again, people, you must go and look at all the videos. They're fantastic. Uh, watched your videos <laughs> and, and the relationship uh, and the perpetual companion you had following you by the sound of it. They must have mm. taken it in turns, a rotor. Right, who's going to run 50K today? Um, 
uh, you were trying to escape, evade them, and they were forever dogging your progress. Uh, and, well, you know, there's there's part of me that's in that society where the men are so so totally dominant and obviously always right, they must have struggled with a, an independent woman that had obviously a route that you want, wanted to pursue. Um, but on the other hand, there, there must have also been some sort of a male pride in wanting to protect you as well. Yeah, it, it took a few days to kind of settle into this relationship and understand what was going on. Because, of course, from that first meeting in the middle of the night with all the guns, um, I didn't really know what was happening. I just knew that I really didn't like them. Um, and so the next day when I started running, everything was fine. It was about halfway through the day that I noticed someone was following me because I was, you know, on that part of the Atlas, there aren't trees or anything to hide behind. You can see someone many kilometers away and this guy was just running after me. And if you're in the middle of that part of the world, you're not going to wait around and see what he's following for. You're just going to run faster. And I put in some really good mileage, um, at first until, um, it was kind of like being in a bad spy movie. I would just kind of like be aware that I was being detailed, not really sure why until I would get to a village or something. I would hear mobile start ringing and people get on their phones going, yep, we saw her. She's out here. And then, you know, a few seconds later, the Jeep shows up and whoever is the sheriff of that part of town will come and say, hello, Jennifer and blah, blah, blah. See what I'm doing. And they would always beg me. They would always beg me, please, can you run on the piste instead of in the mountains? The mountains are dangerous. You'll be safe if you run on the roads. Again, this blew my mind. That is not the safest place for a woman to go. The mountains are great. And I would explain to them, I know mountains really well. I've been doing them my whole life. I know what I'm doing. I'm really experienced. Um, I'll be fine. The roads, however, I'm not very confident on them. Um, so yeah, these guys, basically they got it in their minds that I would die if I went into the mountains. Uh, and it was a few days in that they discovered I had a website. I don't know who decided to Google me, but someone did. Um, they decided that I was someone and if something happened to me, which would, if I went to the mountains, according to their belief, um, it would make the headlines that Morocco killed this woman and they would all lose their jobs and they don't want to lose their jobs. I don't want them to lose their jobs. Uh, but this meant I suddenly became very much a VIP to the gendarmerie in the Atlas mountains. They were not going to let me out of their sight under any circumstances. They had to make sure that I survived. So there was a massive culture clash going on here where, any mountains that I've been to anywhere in the world, there's an assumed responsibility that if you're going to go there, you should be able to take care of yourself. No one should have to come rescue you. Whereas the Moroccan gendarmerie didn't have that. They really very much believed that it was their job to keep me safe. I obviously don't know what I'm doing. I'm just a little dumb woman. And um, if they're there, then I'll be safe. And that's their job and they're happy to do it. Um, and the concept of privacy did not exist at all. So when I'd say like, it's cool. I just want some quiet running. They were like, Oh, don't worry. We'll be really quiet right behind you. And they would just follow me everywhere I went. Um, and so there was, you know, there was, there was good and bad in both of it. Like it did, I did think I was going to have a mental breakdown from being watched that often and, and being supervised at that level. Uh, but at the same time, it didn't come from a negative place. It came from actually a really paternal place that they were really concerned for me, that they really did genuinely want me to have a nice adventure in Morocco and they wanted me to be safe. Uh, and they maybe didn't understand the concept of what I was trying to do. But they, but they wanted to be part of it. They wanted to help, you know, they wanted to be involved. So it was, it was hard to hate them for it, even though um, I did feel very invaded and my interactions with the Berbers then started to get difficult because um, any Berbers that wanted to approach me and offer me a place to stay for the night, they would end up having to be interviewed by the police first. Cause the police would be like, well, who are you to help a runner kind of thing? So it, 
it did get difficult in a lot of ways. Uh, and I had to really try hard to focus on that positive that this is just a group of men who very much want me to live. And that's a nice thing. I wonder if, if the majority of them were from urban backgrounds. And as you say, they didn't have any Berber in them at all. So they wouldn't have, you know, have the confidence themselves in the mountains. And, uh, and that's why they felt the roads was roads are safe. Oh yeah. I had to. So this is the worst part is um, like you said about who's going to run 50 kilometers is they, it was interesting to watch their techniques as they started to get to know the way that my routine worked. So the best techniques they were using were relays. Um, that one guy would be behind me for two hours until we'd meet someone up on the trail who'd been waiting for me. So they always wanted to know my route so that they could organize their relay. Uh, so these guys would only follow me for an hour or two if they could handle it. And it'd be like the young trainees or something. But frequently, these men were not equipped to be out in the mountains. All the time, I was having to give away my water and my snacks to keep these guys... Like, I would just... I kind of didn't want to engage with them because I didn't want them there. I wanted to just, you know, have a kind of authentic expedition, meet the Berbers, be alone in the mountains, that kind of thing. So I would kind of ignore them until I started to realize that the guy 20 meters behind me who's acting like he's not there, but he's obviously there, um, is struggling. And I would notice, oh my God, I'm alone in the wilderness with a guy who has just followed me into a very committed route that I'm confident in, but he obviously has no idea what he's doing. He's got no water with him. And now he's my responsibility because I can't leave him to die. So um, yeah, I was frequently having to babysit these guys who ironically were there to take care of me. Two completely contrasting trips, raw adventure in Kurdistan and cultural pressures of the unwelcome kind in the Atlas Mountains. If you were hooked by this story so far, you must join us for part two, where further challenges in Bolivia and the Southern Alps and a near-death experience will have you right on the edge of your seat. As you can imagine, I was lucky to catch Jenny in a Kathmandu guesthouse before she returned to Scotland, and my thanks must go to her for taking the time to talk with me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it, leave a comment, a review, tell a friend, or drop me a line. If you have any suggestions who you would like to hear from in future, please join our newsletter over on theoutdoorstation.co.uk. More information about Jenny, her adventures, pictures, videos, etc., etc., can all be found on our website, jennytuff.com. Or, of course, pop by theoutdoorstation.co.uk and all the links can be found there. So until next time, folks, enjoy your adventures in the great outdoors. And bye for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear or see more from our extensive free library, please visit theoutdoorstation.co.uk.